Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. In the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are considered especially heinous. In New York City, the dedicated detectives who investigate these vicious felonies are members of an elite squad known as the Special Victims Unit. These are their stories. Apparently, I get to be part of this Special Victims Unit today thanks to Chris and Robert electing me to do the sex talk. Uh, so this is exciting. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at Beacon, and I'm really glad you're here today. Even if you're not sure, you're glad you're here today. Uh, I, I think it'll be okay. Uh, but we are going to be talking about sex. And, and I, I find it interesting because in our society today, there are these, uh, these two kind of strains of thought that coexist, but it seems like they shouldn't coexist. So on the one hand, uh, there's a lot of discourse that sex is just kind of, it's not a big deal. It's just sex. It's, you know, it's like any other physical appetite, you know, you're you're hungry, you eat food, you're tired, you take a nap, you're thirsty, you drink something, you're horny, can I say that? Uh, And you, you take care of it. And then, you know, it's just treat it like any other appetite that you might have. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the idea that's perpetuated in a lot of media and TV shows and movies and stuff like that that's out there. But then there's this, this other strain of thought which understands that, you know, for instance, sexually uh, related crimes are of a particularly heinous nature. That there is something substantial about sex. That it's not just something that is physical and happens over here that you can just kind of move past. Uh, You know, in our society, there's really one criteria for acceptable sex, and that's consent, right? As long as it's two consenting adults, it doesn't matter what you do. And and it kind of makes sense, because, like, if I was eating something and I gave you a bite of my food, that would be fine, because I gave it to you. And if you stole my food and then you ate it, I could prosecute. Uh, but there's no special pantry unit of, like, the NYPD. Like, they, we, don't, we don't treat these sort of thefts in the same way that we deal with sex. When there are sex crimes, we understand that this is particularly heinous. Because there's a part of us, intuitively, that knows sex is substantial. There's something about it. There's a weight and a gravity to our sexuality that amounts to so much more than just uh, a physical interaction or an appetite being satiated. And this is exactly what the the Bible teaches. It's why in the Old Testament, there's so many commands uh, and guidelines for what proper sex is. Uh, In the New Testament, you have the Apostle Paul. He actually says, flee from sexual immorality. Like, just try to get far away, not from sex, just from sexual immorality. He says, flee, get as far away from it. Like, don't, you know, keep pushing the line, try to see how close you can get without doing something wrong. He says, flee from it. And and Jesus says something similar. He says, uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Jesus is actually saying it would be better to be blind and maimed than 
to let this, this part of you go. And because of statements like this, sometimes the Bible and Christians get this, uh, get pegged as being anti-sex, uh, but it's really quite the opposite. Paul, Jesus, the whole scriptures, God, they're for sex. In fact, they have such a high view of sex that they, they want to protect it. They, they see that it's precious. It's precious and it's powerful. It's kind of like a, a radioactive isotope, you know, radioactive isotopes, that when they're handled properly, they have the potential to power cities. And when they're handled improperly, they have the power to destroy and, and just annihilate cities. And, and sex has the power to, to bring life and has the power to destroy life because it was made that way. It's substantial. It's significant. There's this quote I love from Jonathan Edwards. It says, it may be observed that the more excellent anything is, the more will be the counterfeits of it. Thus, there are many more counterfeits of silver and gold than of iron and copper. There are many false diamonds and rubies, but who goes out and counterfeits common stones? Though the more excellent things are, the more difficult it is to make anything that shall be like them in their essential nature and internal values. Yet the more manifold will the counterfeits be, and the more will art and subtlety be displayed in an act, in an exact imitation of the outward appearance. Now he was uh, talking about love, but I think this applies just as equally to sex. Sex, because it is so precious and powerful, it also has so many counterfeits. And you guys see this, like in our society, there are countless counterfeits of sexuality. And the, the hope for today is that we can kind of get on the, the same page to pursue the real thing, to be able to tell the difference between a counterfeit and authentic sexuality as God intended it. Because the real thing, really, it, it's awesome. It's something that, that God made, and it's good, and it's precious, and it should be pursued. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about some of these counterfeits. And there's two that are, are obvious. One counterfeit, sexuality, kind of falls under the umbrella of over-desire. Uh, and for me personally, this is probably where I am most tempted, with the over-desire. For some people, they will be more drawn to the wrong desire when it comes to their sexuality. So they, they want to attach their sexuality to something that is improper, not right. But there's a third one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it is equally a counterfeit of authentic sexuality, and that is the under-desire. That uh, for some of you, you might not be prone to over-desire or wrong-desire, but no-desire. To, to view sex as bad, to view it as uh, dirty or, or gross or something that you want to just stay away from, and, you know. Uh, but that, too, is a counterfeit sexuality. But God gave us sexuality for a reason. It is good. And so uh, this morning we're going to talk about pursuing the real thing. And if you have a Bible and you want to open up to uh, 2 Samuel 11, we're going to look at a story. Uh, and this is a, a true story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. It's uh, probably one of the most famous stories of uh, adultery in the Bible. And for the, the sake of time, as you're, you're opening up, I'm just going to give you a, a brief rundown of what, what takes place in this story. David, uh, you guys are familiar with David. This is like the same David who killed Goliath with the stone. Uh, and now he's king. Things are great. The kingdom is awesome. Like, he's just riding high. And one night, he's out on his roof, and he sees Bathsheba. And she's hot. And she's naked. And he just 
looks a little too long. And then he decides he's going to find out a little more about her. And then he invites her over and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And then comes the cover-up. And so Bathsheba is married and David pulls her husband, Uriah, back from war. And he tries to get him to sleep with her. Maybe he can like, make it seem like it didn't happen. Uh, but it doesn't work. And so eventually, Uriah goes back to war, and David sets it up so that Uriah will be killed in battle intentionally, effectively executing Uriah and then taking Bathsheba as his wife. This is the rundown, and this is, this is heartbreaking because this is David. Like, David was like, he was awesome. <laughs> he was so good, and, and yet he fell so far. And as we look at this story, there's a, a few insights that I think can really help us in our pursuit of the real thing. And, and the first is this, that counterfeit sex rarely happens in a vacuum. Look at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The author uh, and narrator here, he, he goes out of his way to make sure we understand the context in which the adultery took place. Because it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. There were other things going on in David's life. You know, all the, all the soldiers and everything, when kings go off to war, the king, David, decided to stay back in Jerusalem. What's going on there? He's stirred in, in the night to wake from his bed to go up and walk on the roof. What, what's going on? And we can speculate uh, what is actually going on, and a lot of people do. Uh, some suggest, like, because David didn't go to war and all of his, his best friends were soldiers, he didn't have his community of support, and because of that, he, you know, he kind of slipped into temptation. Uh, others say that the reason that David didn't go to war was because he was getting old, and it was no longer safe, and maybe he pursued this relationship with Bathsheba to reclaim his masculinity. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> we could speculate all day. We don't know what the situation is, but we can see that something is going on. There's something more to this situation than merely lust and sexuality. And this is important for us to take into consideration when we are, are battling for, for the real thing and trying to resist the counterfeits is that it doesn't happen in the, like this isolated environment. There's a whole world around us. There's other situations going on in our heart and in our lives that can contribute to this. Uh, I read this, this great book this week. I didn't read all of it, bits and pieces, but uh, it's called the Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And one of the, there's a, it's a collection of a bunch of different writings from different authors, but one of the guys, David Powelson, he is a, a Christian counselor who's counseled people through sexual issues for decades. And he, he talks about this battle of purity and battle of, of trying to attain the real thing when it comes to our sexuality. And he says it's both a wider battle and a deeper battle that it's wider because it does involve these other situations and scenarios in our lives, and it's deeper because it really does deal with heart issues. Uh, and he actually lists off some of the things that, some of the common environments that are conducive to counterfeit sexuality. He says anger and revenge, he sees a lot. Loneliness, the need for affirmation, desire for power, thrill of the chase, anxiety, Financial insecurity, codependency, uh, codependency, having a messiah complex. This is not an exclusive list, but these are just some of the ones that, that he decided to list off. 
I was actually talking to a friend last week, and this friend for uh, a long time had been struggling and battling with lust, uh, particularly with pornography. And uh, I was talking to him last week, and he was sharing with me that he's uh, recently been experiencing tremendous success in overcoming this battle. And one of the, the key things for him was to learn what the triggers were that kind of caused him to succumb to that temptation. Because it wasn't just about lust for him. He began to realize that for him, it, it was deeply connected to control issues. That when his life felt out of control, when he felt out of control, when he felt like God had abandoned him and things weren't working out the way they were, when he was overcome by that, those were the moments where he would try to regain control and he would he'd go back and look at pornography. It wasn't just the lust itself. It was the lust combined with these, these broader circumstances. What, what are the triggers for you? What are the things that cause you to succumb to temptation, that weaken you so you, you can't stand up against it? What are the, the triggers for you that maybe don't cause you to, to go toward over-desire, but to go toward under-desire, to you know, feel like sex is, is bad or wrong or dirty? For us, if we're, we're going to have success in this battle, we have to understand it's a wider battle and it's a, a deeper battle. There's a study done several years ago, and it is a very, very exhaustive study of sexuality in America. This is uh, not a Christian study. It was just a secular study. Uh, but they, they find that this is true. They say, we find, not surprisingly, that a satisfying sex life requires more than simple marital status or access to a partner. Happiness with partnered sex is linked to happiness in life. We cannot say which comes first, general happiness or a good sex life, but the correlations are clear and striking. That in the same way that the, the bad environment can lead to counterfeit sex, good environments lead to, to the real thing. And we have to be aware of these, these broader circumstances if we're going to be able to successfully pursue the real thing. The next uh, insight we glean from this story is that when the light grows dim, the shadows are softer. If you want to jump ahead to chapter 12, verse 1. At this point, David is now married to Bathsheba, and everything's just kind of fine. They're just going on with life as if nothing happened. And then in verse 1, it says, The Lord sent Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan comes to him, and he tells him this story. It's like a, a parable. He says, There were these two guys, David. There's uh, this rich guy, and there's this poor guy. And the rich guy had all of these sheep, and the poor guy he just had this one lamb. This one precious lamb that he, he treated like a child. It would like sleep with him at night. It was his beloved little lamb. And one day a visitor came to town and the rich man decided to host the visitor. But instead of using one of his lambs, he went and he stole the poor man's sheep. And he slaughtered it. And he prepared it for the feast. David hears this story and in verse 5 it says, David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And in that, that moment, David was just cut to the heart. He began to realize what had happened and he was convicted. And what I find so surprising about this story is that the Lord had to send Nathan to David in order for David to feel the conviction. This is surprising because if you know anything about the story of David, David was originally a man, he was called a man after God's own heart. 
He was so connected with the Lord. In fact, at one point, King Saul, this is the previous king, was pursuing David because he was just jealous of David. He wanted to kill David. And David is hiding out in a cave, and Saul comes in to relieve himself. David sneaks up and cuts a corner of his robe just to, to show what he could have done, that he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. But look what it says. It says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. This is the kind of heart David had. He was conscience-stricken after cutting off a corner of the robe. Now, he sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, has him killed, and takes this other woman to be his wife, and there's nothing. What happened to his conscience? What happened to his heart? The, the light in David's life, his relationship with God, started to, to sever, and the light grew dim, and the, the shadows grow soft. The lines get blurred. What's good, what's bad? And this is a really important insight for us in our pursuit, because Sometimes, and I've heard this before, and I even said this myself in the past, sometimes we feel like it's okay because I feel like God says it's okay. Like if I was doing something wrong here, I would feel guilty and shameful, and I don't feel that. I feel like it's okay, but sometimes, sometimes our conscience isn't going to be able to guide us. The light grows dim, our hearts grow hard, and we become desensitized. This is actually what, what Paul says about the, the people in Ephesus. He says, they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. We become darkened in our understanding as our, our relationship with God grows, grows distant and cold and, and these things don't seem so bad anymore. But the opposite is also true. That is, the light shines bright, reality becomes clearer. So Nathan comes in and he shines a light in David's soul. And he starts to see all of this and he feels the conviction. But we also get this bright shining light of God's faithfulness in the midst of David's unfaithfulness. And, and this is what I find so cool. Nathan could have chosen any illustration to let David know what he did, but he chooses this picture of this, this poor man with this beloved lamb who would be slaughtered by the rich man. And for us, we see that, that God, God chose to be the poor man in this situation. God, in his faithfulness, chose to be the poor man, to let his beloved son, his only begotten son, the lamb of God, to be slaughtered because of David's unfaithfulness, because of our unfaithfulness. And in the midst of this story of unfaithfulness, we see this bright shining light of God's faithfulness. And when we start to see sexuality in the light of God's faithfulness, it changes how we understand sexuality. So in the Old Testament, very often, there's a link between worship and sex. So much so that when the Israelites would worship other gods, God would accuse them of being adulterers and he would accuse them of, of prostituting themselves to these other gods. And there's these, these really vivid images that are given like Ezekiel 16 and in Hosea where, where Israel is called this harlot, this prostitute who went out and God redeemed her. By his faithfulness, he redeemed her. And then we get to the New Testament and we see that the church, us, we are we are the bride of Christ. And when Paul's talking to husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, 
that we are his bride and he gave himself up to to make us holy. And, And here's the best part. The whole story of the Bible, the whole story of humanity, do you know what it culminates in? At the end of Revelation, you know what the, the picture of the culmination of human history is? It's a wedding feast. It says in, in Revelation, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. The lamb is Jesus. The wedding of the lamb has come and his bride, that's us, has been made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her. We've been made pure and all of this is culminating with a, a wedding feast. That, that this is the picture that God gives us of our, our future hope. So imagine, imagine this for a minute. It's the, the union of a bride and a groom who are completely pure in an exclusive relationship that is permanent, resulting in ecstatic satisfaction in each other. What is that a picture of? It's marriage, right? Union of bride and groom, completely pure in an exclusive relationship that is permanent, resulting in ecstatic satisfaction in one another. This is a picture of marriage, but it's also a picture of our future glory. This is also the picture of what it will look like to, to actually be in heaven, to be united with Christ. Is it, possible, is it possible that God gave us sex for like a reason? That it wasn't just like, oh, this will be fun for them. Here you guys go. Uh, you know, is it possible that maybe God gave us sex and marriage because it's actually pointing to a deeper reality? That he gave us sex and marriage to let us know what our future glory is like because this is it, to be united, the bride and groom, completely pure in an exclusive relationship that is permanent, resulting in ecstatic satisfaction in one another. Now, when it talks about a wedding in Revelation, just so you know, back in these days, the wedding, the celebration, it's not like a modern wedding where there's like, do you, I do, do you, I do, and, and then there was a party. Uh, instead, the party was actually around the consummation of the marriage. So like all the guests would be there and the bride and groom would like go into a tent and consummate the marriage and then they come out and there'd be this big celebration. Uh, so you have to understand the, the wedding feast in this light that when it talks about a wedding feast at the end of Revelation, that the culmination of human history is a wedding feast, that, that it's not just like I do, you do, like we're united, but there's the, the consummation of this relationship that results in ecstatic satisfaction in one another that we will be so satisfied in Christ, completely heart, mind, body, will, soul, satisfied in Christ, and he will be satisfied in us. There is nothing in this world that pictures this like sex does. There's nothing. There's no other you know, thing that we have to hold on to where, where we are actually satisfied in another person, and they're satisfied in us, mutually satisfied in each other like sex. Could it be that God gave us sex to give us a, a, an idea of what the future was going to be like? Like, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there's like some weird sex thing that happens. in no, uh, It's a picture. You know, sex is just a, a picture of the future reality. Like I, I used to be kind of disappointed. Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. Uh, and if there's no marriage, there's no sex. Until I realized that marriage and sex are all pointing to what heaven is. That it's this uni- union with Christ where we are, are permanently connected, enjoying this mutual satisfaction in one another. This is, is the picture of biblical sex because this is the picture of our future glory. And when we compromise on any of these things, we're actually compromising on the picture of our future glory. That there's more to this than just God trying to be restrictive He's giving us something to hold on to. And so this becomes the standard 
If you want to know what's okay, you, you can ask, all right, who am I going to be sexually stimulated and satisfied by? Who am I going to be sexually stimulated and satisfied by? Well, bride and groom, all right? Well, they're completely pure. What does that, what does that mean? Who's pure? That means that we're pure in body, but we're also pure in our, our thoughts and our attention. And, you know, maybe you say, you know, I'm dating somebody and we're exclusive. That's great, but it's, it's also like making sure you're still exclusive because it's permanent, right? It's not just exclusive, but it's exclusive and permanent. So it's not like, oh, I'm exclusive with them right now, and then I'll be exclusive with them later on. No, it's exclusive and permanent. And, and this was so important to Jesus that not only was Jesus pure, but he died to make us pure so that we could be welcomed into this. Purity is, is a hugely important idea to God. Not just for the here and now, but because of the, the reality that it represents. And maybe for you, you're on the other side of this, where maybe you're married, and there's this union of a bride and groom, and you're pure, and you're exclusive, and this marriage is permanent, and there is zero ecstatic satisfaction in one another. This as well is a counterfeit. And I, I understand, you know, as we talked before, it's a wider and it's a deeper battle. And so I understand that maybe if you're in a sexless marriage, you can't just flip a switch and make it better. But be resolved. Be resolved to bring the real thing back, to work together. It might take months or weeks or years even to, to restore things. But don't give up on this because this is a picture of our future glory. God gave it to us for a reason. And it's beautiful and it's precious. And it's not just about the physical enjoyment of it. It's, you know, there's more to it than just the, the physical enjoyment. There's some emotional bond. Sex is, is really special. Uh, that study that I referenced earlier said, uh, if frequent orgasms, yep, there I, I said it. Uh, frequent or, is it better if I say climax? No, that's worse. Uh, if frequent orgasms were a prerequisite for sexual satisfaction, we would expect to see a closer relationship between orgasm and satisfaction among men and women. Apparently, more is involved than in a good sex life than having orgasms. And not everyone who has an orgasm every time has blissful sex. That might be TMI. But it, it points to this, this truth that there's more going on in, in the sexual union than just the, the physical satisfaction. There's this emotional satisfaction, this spiritual satisfaction, that this is, this is our hope. And to choose anything else is it actually is making this statement that, God, the hope that you've provided for me isn't good enough. I want something other. I want something different. I will choose better. Now, I just want to side real quick. Uh, so some of you are single, and you have been single, and maybe you will plan on being single forever. Uh, and there's so much talk about sex and how important it is, and maybe you will never have sex. And that is also okay. Yes, I, yes, you will be missing out on something, but the Bible also says that there's something else that you get. <laughs> Being single, there's a picture that you get of what it's like to be uh, present with God. In fact, Jesus was celibate his whole life, and he was the most fully human person who ever lived. Uh, so, so don't feel like if you know, there is no sex in your life that you're missing out, especially because the reality that sex points to is still yours. The, glory, uh, the glorious union that we have with Christ to look forward to, that is still yours. And, and this is just a shadow of what will be. Now, 
as uh, I wrap up, there's just one last thing that we see in this story that I think is really, really, really important for us. Uh, because if, if you're like me, then there have been seasons in your life, and maybe you're currently in a season in life, where this has not been the standard for purity, for sex for you, where you've operated outside of this. And, and realizing now the, the weight of that and, and seeing what that means, there's, there's feelings of guilt and shame, but there's, there's also hope because there is mercy for the fallen. Even in this story with David, despite the fall, there is mercy for the fallen. If you look, verse 13, then, say, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confessed. He owned up. He recognized what has happened. If, if you have sinned in this way, if you've pursued counterfeits in your sexuality, confess it. Don't try to brush it off. Don't try to say, oh, that was just, you know, kids being kids. Acknowledge what that is. Confess it to the Lord. And then Nathan replied, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. Just let that sink in for a second. That, that these acts, the pursuing of the, the counterfeit sexuality, that it's actually, it shows utter contempt for the Lord. It's not just denying what he made. It's denying the hope that he's set before us. We've shown utter contempt for the Lord. But he says, because of this, the son born to you will die. And it's really interesting because the son that's born to David here does die. Uh, he remains nameless. You never know uh, the name. But, but this promise that was given to David is the same promise for you. That for you, if you confess this sin, this sin can be taken away. But because you've done this, because we, I, have shown utter contempt for the Lord in this, the son of David had to die. If you're not familiar, the son of David is one of the, the titles, one of the key titles for Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross, and we can actually, we can experience freedom from the sin and guilt and the shame. And so maybe there's something in the past, the distant past, maybe there's something from like a couple hours ago. There is freedom from the guilt and shame. Jesus died for that, and it's complete. You don't have to carry the guilt and shame. Now, there, there might be pain. There, there might be a lifetime of consequences. There were, was for David. And, and I encourage you, if you're in the midst of the pain and, and the consequences of that, don't give up. David, he, was, he, he went to prayer and he started fasting that God would, you know, be merciful. And in this case, the son still died. But, but don't give up. Keep praying and, and appealing to God's mercy. But then, after the child dies, look at verse 20. David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. How could somebody worship when their child just died? When they went through so much pain, when they had so much guilt and shame? It's because the pain that David was feeling, it didn't just remind him of his unfaithfulness, but it also pointed to the faithfulness of God. And if we we resist worshiping in these moments, then it's going to push us back 
into the, the dim light where the shadows grow soft and the lines get blurred and we fall back into the same routines over and over again. But, but when we come to worship, we acknowledge the pain is there. God's, God might leave it because sin hurts. Sin matters. These things matter. And he might leave that for us to deal with. But, but don't let it just point to your unfaithfulness. Let it remind you that, that as David, what we deserved was death. <laughs> And that the pain that we experience is, is less than that because he took away our guilt and shame and be reminded of his faithfulness that we can view our sex, our marriages, our relationships in light of his faithfulness. I'm gonna call the band up now uh, so we can actually worship, so we can go to God and we can celebrate his faithfulness, that we can let the, the light of his glory and grace shine on our lives. No matter what your past looked like, there is hope. No matter what your past looked like, you might have pursued all the counterfeits in the world, but, but you don't have to anymore. You can pursue the real thing. By the, the grace of God, let, let his faithfulness be the, the light that, that shows you what, what sex is about, what it's for, how good it is. Be resolved to pursue the real thing, and you can actually glorify God in your sexuality. Like, delighting in him because of your sexuality. It's incredible. Let us worship together.